0: Hi, thanks for listening to Bowties in Business. I'm your host, Tim Kubiak. And as always, you can find us on our socials at Bowties in Business on Facebook and Instagram and Bowties and B-I-Z on Twitter. You can find me at Tim Kubiak just about everywhere, including LinkedIn, Twitter, and timkubiak.com. Today, we're talking to Andrew Lees. He's a background in mechanical and aerospace engineering and runs a consulting business focused on entrepreneur helping entrepreneurs develop their products, and just as importantly, launch them with a strategy. So we've talked to a lot of people that are in the startup business space, but we've not talked to anybody who works with people who are developing products. So it's going to be an interesting conversation in that way. So when he's not helping people develop and launch their products, Andrew, Andrew loves to be outside playing basketball, surfing, or traveling with his wife. You can learn more about what he does at StokesStrategies.com. Andrew, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Tim, for having me. This is this is great. Yeah. Nailed the intro. I love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, every so often,
0: I've got to learn to print things in bigger type, to be honest. So <laughs> if you don't mind, tell us a little more about yourself, things that I maybe didn't cover there, how you got into the business, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I have a background in mechanical engineering. Uh, I went to Lehigh University. And when I graduated, um, I knew I, I kind of always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur of some kind. I just didn't know, just didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of thought I wanted to be an inventor. I wanted to develop products, even when I was a little kid. Um, so I thought, all right, and that's actually one of the things that led me to engineering. That and my grandfather was a mechanical engineer, and uh, we were always working on projects together. So that that was a, he was a big influence to to um, get an engineering degree. And then the other thing was just that I thought, all right, well, I want to be an inventor, but you can't get a degree in that. So what's the next best thing? And that's, uh, that's where you know I decided to, to get a mechanical engineering degree. Uh, but I, I kind of lost track through college. I kind of lost track of why I was going into engineering in the first place. And so, um, I mean, I really, I love space. I love the idea of, you know, spacecraft and aircraft. I, I still do. And so I thought, I kind of took a detour and thought maybe that's what I wanted to do. Um, but after graduating from college, I realized that any, really any aerospace company I'd be working with, just like any large company, I'd just be, probably be another cog in the wheel, you know, no matter how smart I was, how good I was, didn't didn't really matter. Um, you're just working on one specific thing of a, you know, of a big um of, of a big project. And that just wasn't for me. So I really got back to why I got into engineering in the first place and I started to, to um, develop products and I started to kind of get more, get back into inventing. And I, I really wanted to launch a product. Um, Before I did, I started working for a product development firm in Philadelphia and I was helping other people, you know, design and develop their their inventions and bring them to market. Um, so I, I really wanted to do that for myself. And so that's when I started Grass Racks, which is a, um, we're talking about a little bit offline, but it's a, we make a board, bike, and ski display racks for your wall. And we've also got some freestanding versions. Um, and so that's something that I, I still operate today. I started years ago and um, really from absolutely nothing. I I got a piece of wood and a jigsaw and I made the first prototype. And, and so that's, that's where it started. And then from there, a couple of years later, I started, I branched out and started my own consulting firm, Stoke Ventures, to help um, develop products for people, you know, myself. So it was my own company Focused on helping inventors uh, get their products to market, and and from there, I've I've launched Stoke Strategies, which is um, all under the Stoke Ventures umbrella. But it's just uh, after or you know during or before what while you know some some clients just want to develop their products, uh, but a lot really need help with getting their product to market, understanding the whole process and. So that's where we come in. Helping people understand how to get from zero to one um, is where we really focus on.
0: And do you have a particular area or industry that you help people develop products in?
1: Uh, mostly consumer. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so business to consumer is it a lot of e-tailing, is it a lot of distribution, is, it, is the goal to get into traditional retail? What do you see? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, sure. Um the well right now I'd say the goal the the primary goal just you know for getting started I I always recommend that my clients just start selling their product online for most products. Um you you're gonna, you know, especially now um where online sales, e-commerce is just exploding and we're only scratching the surface I think. I think it's going to grow in a massive way in the next few years. The pandemic, well, I've heard that the pandemic has basically brought three years of growth in e-commerce forward, accelerated it to this point, you know, and it's it's only going to grow even more. So I always I always recommend for, you know, to my clients that they sell online and for a couple of different reasons that they focus on that in the beginning. And the first is because of the, you know, the growth potential. Um because of margins too. And then it's also, it's a lot less risky than trying to get into retail right off the bat. And, and honestly, most retailers won't give you the time of day until you have some traction, some sales history at all. And the best way to do that, I think is to to start online. So when people come, do they come with a fully baked idea? Do they come with a
0: concept? How early stage do you pick up somebody's idea for a product and really help them evolve
1: it? Yeah, I mean, usually very early. You know, most people just have an idea that's, that's very half baked um, at best. <laughs> they, uh, you know, they've, they know kind of what they want. You know, they usually have a good idea of what they want the product to do and um but but that's usually it and that's really enough um i've worked on everything from a napkin sketch to not having any visual at all just having a few bullet points of like hey these are the these are the features i want and and just go for it so um yeah usually especially when you're dealing with inventors they're they're really coming with an idea um and maybe a sketch at best. And, and I actually like that because I've worked with, I worked with companies that, you know, really give you a more fleshed out design or I, you know, concept that they want you to develop. And while that gives you more firm boundaries, it also kind of can box you in, you know, so, so you're not, they, they have this idea that they're very set in stone with it. They, they don't want to, you know, they don't want any, there to be too much artistic liberty, or they don't necessarily want you to think too, too creatively and outside the box with it. But I like to get a product and, or, or an idea and think about, Hey, you know, you, this is a great idea. How can we make it even better? How can we make it cheaper to produce while still maintaining a quality product? You know, how can we um, balance everything here? So you get the best product possible.
0: So if we go back to, for a second to grass racks, right? You have a really beautiful
1: sustainability story there. Do you mind telling it? Sure. Um, so we started, started with um, making the products out of just wood. I just, I, I really did just take a jigsaw, grab a piece of wood from, I think, scrap wood that was lying around my, my condo and, I started cutting the first prototype, but it, it didn't really, it felt very chunky. I think it was like an inch, inch and a quarter thick piece. It was, it was really chunky. It, um, it had the, it kind of split in a couple area in a couple areas because it wasn't a plywood. So it didn't have um, it was strong, but it had the, the uh, you know, it was, had the ability to split easier than, than other woods or plywood. So I thought I really wanted to come up with something that was really strong, wasn't so chunky and was also just beautiful right out of the box, you know, right without having to apply too much finish or, um, without having to do too much sanding or post-processing and came up with bamboo. So it's, it's really strong. It's really beautiful. Um, and, and then once I figured out, once I kind of started learning more about bamboo and all its properties, I, I mean, I, re- I realized pretty quickly that it's, it's not just strong and beautiful, but it's also really great for the planet because um, grows. it's, it's grass. The, the name of our business is Grass Racks because uh, bamboo is technically in the grass family. Um, so it grows incredibly quickly and uh and it sequesters a ton of carbon dioxide so so with those two things i mean you can chop it down without any it's not like chopping down a a tree where it takes you know decades to grow back It, it grows back in in weeks months you know um so so it's you know i really realized that hey this is a this is an awesome material to work with um for, you know, it's, it's super eco-friendly and it's, it's something that I wanted to, I realized that the eco-friendliness and, you know, not just making a great product, but also making a great product for the planet was also super important for the business.
0: So how did you get into it? How does a guy from Eastern PA end up making racks for skateboards I can get, but surfboards and (laughs) and other things. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I, always got that question, even before I started grass racks, they'd say, I, you know, I would tell somebody that I surf, they asked me where I'm from. Um, especially in college. Uh, a lot of people thought I was from California, uh, before I told them I was from PA and, and when they, you know, so they, they thought I'd say I surf and they, they just assumed I was from California anyway. So like, Oh, that makes sense. And they'd find out I'm from, from Pennsylvania. And they're like, where are you surfing in Pennsylvania? You know, I'd always get that. And I'm like, Hey, it's not that far from the, the beach or an hour and a half from, um, from Atlantic city. And she just right. drives straight East. So it's not that far. And, um, but it, it is kind of, it is kind of a leap. Like we went to my business partner, Evan and I, um, we, we went to a couple of trade shows in Florida. Uh, one of it's called surf expo. It's like the largest water sport, expo in the i think the world maybe the country used to be in california but um now they well before the pandemic they had it in in orange county california or uh, florida and we, when we got down there you know people were asking us our, our origin story where we're from we'd say pennsylvania and they're just like what what how are you here you know what is that it doesn't it doesn't add up so and we just sort of started having fun with it and we'd say yeah Penn, we're from philadelphia you know the, the surfing capital of the world it's you know <laughs> plenty, plenty of surf around here so so it was uh <laughs> it was natural and unnatural all at the same time how it got started so have you surfed california at all i have yeah yeah a lot it's a lot different than than the east coast the east coast is much friendlier in terms of the the waves. Um, you know, it's just much more mellow, much more relaxed. The best day of surfing I've surfed in on the East coast and, uh, you know, New Jersey, North Carolina, North and South Carolina, California, and Hawaii. The, the best surfing, the best day of surfing I ever had was actually in New Jersey though. Just perfect, perfect waves. One day, the weather was insane. It was amazing. The water was really glassy and smooth. Um, you know, these barreling waves are actually somewhat local professional surfers who were out there. People were filming with telephoto lenses. I've, I've never seen it anywhere else. The next day, and this is what happens on the East Coast, and this is why it's just California. Other places just are better because the consistency just isn't there. The next day, it was the worst conditions possible. It was like a storm. There was a storm. It was choppy. The waves were off. I, it was just—it was like night and day from literally within a few hours. So, um, but anyway, yeah, East Coast is still the best place I've ever surfed. I, I mean, the best waves, I should say. Hawaii best is the waves. best. Hawaii is the best place for sure. Hawaii is the best place. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, no comparison there.
0: <laughs> so I, I've got a buddy from San Diego, and okay, he grew up surfing, right? And literally I go out one day and he's got his own company. So he can kind of do his own thing. He's pretty successful. He's got a brand new Mercedes S class. He's got mm. seats down. He lives four four or so blocks from the beach. So he's close, but he still drives up because he's not carrying the board that far. Mm. Brand new car, throws the board in the wetsuit and the St. Bernard in the brand new car, goes, <laughs> surfs, comes back his wife was ready to kill him yeah <laughs> he, tra- he trashed the interior in under a day <laughs> oh sure
1: yeah that that's a good combo a dog a wetsuit a sand oh man i yeah. still have sand in my car from like uh it was halloween we went to uh charleston and i've still got like a big thing of sand in my car i don't even want to get rid of it because it just reminds me of the beach so i'm just gonna Keep it right. in there for the reminder.
0: <laughs> you're not terribly far now. You're not quite Atlantic City close, but you're not terribly far.
1: Yeah, yeah, not too yeah. far. And Charleston's not that far from us—about four hours. So it's it's not right around the corner, but it's not too far away. Yeah, you can still do a long weekend. Get exactly. out on a Friday. Yeah, exactly.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about product design, right? Yeah. Um, I do with software design
1: mm-hmm. a lot
0: with my client set, but. Okay. What do you see with physical products? What are things people need to consider or think through as they start to really try and bring that that napkin drawing to life?
1: Yeah. So with physical products, there's um, there's a lot of things to consider because you actually you actually have to produce it, and I think you know you have to physically make it. I mean, there's there's pros and cons of physical versus software. I like I like I love apps because you know you can. Iterate it as many times as you want, and you don't. There's no no real significant cost to um, you know. To, there's no real prototyping costs, right? Yeah. But with with uh, physical products, there's a there's a very very real and significant prototyping costs in in some cases. I mean, one two. I've got two projects right now that I'm working on that are wildly different in their prototyping costs. One, it's a really small product. Um, and we're going to 3d print it. It's literally going to be a few dollars to print it. Um, and to, and to prototype it. So we could iterate the thing, you know, 10, 20 times, and it would cost maybe a couple hundred bucks. Um, I've got another product that I'm working on that, um, it's, it's a larger thing. It's about 18, 18 inches in diameter, about 12 inches tall. And there's, there's about, there's eight parts and the total cost is about four or $5,000. And, and that's just the reality with, with, you know, making a physical product is you're, you're going to spend, um, you're going to spend more in development because you're, um, you know, you've, you've actually got to make the product. So that's something that, that people definitely have to consider. Um, so usually if it's a pretty small product around the size of your fist, it's not going to cost a whole lot for, for prototyping. But if it's a lot larger than that, then yeah, you really have to to consider that. And then you have to obviously, if you're if you're, you know, talking about manufacturing the product in production, you have to think about um, the ordering inventory, but also ordering tooling that's going to make the parts. Um, and you've got to think then through all the way through the process of, okay, how am I going to manufacture this product? How am I going to maybe assemble it if, if necessary, and then put it into a box, which is called kidding. Um, how am I going to fulfill it? Who's going to do that? You know, so that's, that's just things that, I mean, the, the most important thing I think is for people to get started you know, to, to at least get, get working on a design and get the project, you know, going. And um, because, because otherwise you're, you know, you're just stuck and you'll never get it off the ground at all. So I think it's important to just kind of take things one step at a time, not bite off more than you can chew. And then, and then really to cover most of my clients will self fund through development and prototyping but when they get to manufacturing that's like where the real costs can add up and so a lot of times they're not paying for that out of pocket but they're either gonna they're either gonna license the product or they're gonna um, crowdfund which is definitely something that i recommend um, i actually work with a, a company that does crowdfunding management and they they do a really good job with that and so that's, that's just one way that you can raise capital before you have to manufacture it that can actually pay for manufacturing and get you through the, the rest of the process.
0: That's a really interesting thing I've never considered, right? Is using crowdfunding for bringing a product to market. I've bought a couple, but it yeah. never dawned on me to do that as part of the process. Yeah, yeah. Is there, as you work with people part of your consulting, is there discussion about volumes and quantity discounts? And I hate to say offshoring, but, you know, outsourced manufacturing, whether it's onshored or offshored, is, are those yeah. all areas you help guide people?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and that, that's part of it because I think it's important to to not just design a product for people and say, hey, here's, here's this CAD design, you know, here are these files. Good luck, have fun. Um, because yeah, manufacturing itself can be kind of tricky to, to navigate. So yeah, with, with all my clients, we're talking about whether, you know, whether they want to manufacture in the U S whether they want to offshore, um, and, and how they want to deal with that. I mean, it's some people, they don't, they definitely want to make it in the U S you know, there's, there's like no question about that. Um, they want to find a U.S. manufacturer. They want everything made here or at least as much as they possibly can. And that's it. And some people really don't care. Um, it's kind of interesting. I've, I've got mixed feelings about it because at the end of the day, I'd love, I want our economy to do really well, you know, um, but sometimes part of that, part of having our economy do well is utilizing and leveraging lower cost resources in other countries, you know, taking advantage of the lower costs of living in other places. And the bottom line is our cost of living in this country is high. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to compete on everything, but um, the cool thing is that there's still a lot that we can be very competitive with when it comes to manufacturing, such as prototyping. Um, I mean, all the prototypes I make are, are made in the U S it just, for the most part, at least it makes sense. Um, even if I could get something cheaper overseas, usually it makes sense to make it here because of, uh, it just it takes, it doesn't take as long, easier, a little easier to communicate. You're not dealing with this large production run type thing where you can, you know, make some samples, make sure everything's right. Like. You're only making one part, so you better be right. And so, so a lot of times, dealing with a U.S. company for something like that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then, usually, very large parts that take up a lot of um, space, shipping, basically, kind of call it shipping air. Like you're, let's say it's um, let's say it's a chair that doesn't nest very well with other. Okay. You know with other parts so you, you you know you can't really stack it very well and when you put it on a pallet it ends up being most literally mostly air more air than your actual product in that case it's usually more cost effective just to make that here because um, shipping can really get kind of crazy but if you've I've got one client who makes his uh, it's a fishing product and he makes it overseas in China. And he really had to, to get the cost to where it needs to be, to be able to sell it at a reasonable cost and be able to, you know, have enough, enough margin. Cause you've got to consider marketing costs in there. Um, and he can, if he orders a thousand of them, they fit in a box, like, like you know, like that. Yeah. So it's no big deal. Is that why in
0: some things, and I'll pick on furniture, right. Is yeah. now you see it build it yourself. I know the, the large Scandinavian company started that, you know, ten years ago, but now yeah. you see it in all the big box retailers. It's build your own furniture. And I know it's yeah. all offshore. It used to come from the Carolinas, but it doesn't anymore. Yeah, true. You know? and, and it's got to be, you know, that weight per inch in the box and the
1: packaging for putting it on a container. It's probably a huge deal. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's one of the things that, uh, if you go to Ikea, that they've yep. really figured out is you pick up a, a box the size of a, of a laptop and it weighs like a hundred pounds, you know, because they've, they've got, they've maximized every single square inch in that box. And part of that, I mean, it's really genius design because you can't just design something to function well. They're also taking it a step further and figuring out how, how it, uh, nests together and how it all fits together and can be packaged. So, um, yeah, it's exactly right. If, you know, if you can maximize that space, uh, you can save a ton on shipping and then it starts to make more sense, uh, for shipping, like with our, with our rack products, they, they're very, very easy to assemble, but I mean, we don't, um, we don't assemble, we don't ship them assembled. We, uh, let the customers do that. And, uh, most of our products hang on the wall. It's a mounting bar and then a cradle that just hangs on it. Uh, but we also have a couple of freestanding racks that have four parts that, um, that just fit together. They've got slots that align with each other and you um, knock it together with a, a rubber mallet. And, and once it's together, it's really rock solid. But if we were to ship that assembled, it would cost a significant amount more than flat pack shipping the way that we do it.
0: That's interesting.
1: And and I've looked at, and we'll put them in the post on the website,
0: some pictures of your racks and stuff, because they're beautiful. I mean, I appreciate it. You know, so one of the things for people listening that don't have the visual, I'll describe it and then you can keep me honest, okay? (laughs) So when you say rack to me, I think uh, the tubular steel, ugly looking thing that I put my two bicycles on, right? Or Mm roof rack or old school ski rack and stuff you hang around yours are beautiful wood grain pieces they're they're actually kind of like art is my impression is that fair
1: i i appreciate it well uh, that's what we're going for so if if you got that from the website then i guess we're doing something right because that's that's spot on and i mean I, i one of the reasons i did start the business um or you know i came up with the idea for the business was because the the options, I, I mean, I wanted something. I wanted some kind of a display rack for my boards. Um, and when I looked, I, I really wasn't thinking. The first thought I, I had was not, "Hey, let me start a rack company." It was, you know, and this is how I think a lot of ideas are born: is um, you have a problem and you need to solve it, and so you you know you look around and you try and find something that will solve your problem. And when I looked around, it was there. There were there are definitely racks out there and there have been for a long time, but all I could find were, you know, PVC wrapped in, in foam. And, you know, even if they were wood, they were kind of crappy wood, lots of metal, things that you would, you wouldn't even be excited to have in your garage, let alone, you definitely can't put it a lot of that stuff in your house. And that's what we wanted to change really is, is kind of make it like art. I mean, the, your board, are bored is like the artwork and our racks are like the frame to the art. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I totally got it just on the first set of visuals I saw when I hit
0: the website. So
1: cool. Yeah. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh, that, no really that, cool that stuff. Resonated. Yeah.
0: So back, back to your consulting business. Yeah. You know, you talk a lot about sell it online. You've talked about, you know, getting it to production how mm-hmm. do you how do you research? Is there a demand before you go to that step?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and uh, probably the first thing actually that's overlooked with uh, you know when people are starting any business, I think is is doing really good market research. Um, it's you know it's something that um, that needs more attention for most businesses, and and so you know, the way that you do that is you look for competitive products, comparative products. What are the products that are, that are, might compete with your product? What are the compet you know, products that are, that are similar, you know, within that, that, that your uh, ideal customer might purchase, you know, and, and you want to figure out um, you want to figure out price points and distribution channels and and then you want to dig even deeper and look at look at reviews look at things that people are looking for or that they don't like about a certain product um, and and a lot of times you can get really good information from even from from just digging around uh, looking at reviews online for for products because people will in those reviews really tell you what they like and what they don't like and what they need. Um, so, and then as much as you can uh, talk to people, you know, find out, Hey, is this, what, what would you, um, you know, what would you pay for something like this? What, how would you use this? Is, does this make sense? Is it intuitive? And um, actually there's a whole, there's a really uh, more exact way to do that part of it, to do the uh, kind of the consumer, um, you know, to ask uh, potential consumers, how they would uh, interact with your product Um, because it's, it's actually, it's actually a lot less straightforward. A lot of people are are asking very leading questions when they're, you know, doing research. Like if I'm asking you, what do you think about my rack product? And a lot of times it's very, very natural for me to ask a lot of very leading questions. Um, you're not going to want to offend me there, but there's ways. So there's this like, you know, natural human dynamic that gets in the way of when you're communicating your product idea to somebody else um, that we really have to work hard to get around. And there's, I um, can't think of There's a book that, that uh, you know, really does it justice. I can't think of the name of it, but Anyway, yeah, just doing research and figuring out what else is out there, and and really understanding, hey, is there is there a real need for this product? You know, product. Are people actually having a problem, or am I just having a problem? That's really, um, at at its most basic level, that's what you're trying to figure out. One
0: of the things I've noticed, you know, you talk about a lot of people coming up with ideas to sell to consumers, right? Mm. And the thing that's amazed me, I'm an old guy now. Uh, the thing that's amazed me is every eighteen months, there's some new fancy pan and knife for sale on television, <laughs> right? So yep, it, yep. there really is a market for building a better mousetrap or reinventing mm-hmm. what's already there, right? Or improving on what's already there.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it, it's uh, to a point. I think if you have if you have a, a big enough point of distinction, you know, and your value proposition is, is better than your competition, then it's it's going to be easier. I mean, there is something to be said for, hey, this guy sells, you know, something and I'm going to sell the exact same thing. And I'm, yeah, I'm probably going to get some business as long as if, if I can figure out how to, you know, connect with an audience, then then yeah. And there's, there is a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of people doing that creating Shopify stores and um, there's, you know, the whole drop shipping movement people uh, I I don't know if that's sort of died down a little bit um, but I know it was a big thing at least a couple of years ago. And it still might be that, you know, people are finding products on Alibaba or um, some, some other way overseas and they're, they're, Basically, they're getting samples or, you know, taking pictures and of the product. There may be, they're basically kind of sort of rebranding it, the, you know, the product and they're just selling it. So you could have a hundred different companies selling the exact same product in just a slightly different way. And that works, but it doesn't, it's, it's not going to be sustainable. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to last. You might be able to make some money, but make sure that you get out before you know you're you, you stop making that return on investment because it's just not going to last you're not building it. my my opinion
0: of that is you're not building any brand loyalty right you're delivering essentially a consumable or disposable item
1: yeah exactly yeah it's a commodity type thing you know you can yeah. get it from multiple sources and so you have to convince people that you're the source and you are you they trust you more than you know, anybody else. And, um, and that's, I think that's tough to do. It, it's hard to do. So once you get, once you build the trust, you want to make sure you have enough, you can be in business with that product long enough that it actually makes sense. Cause it might take you a year to build trust. And then all of a sudden that, you know, there's no more meat on the bone left for whatever product you were trying to sell. You know, if it's just a commodity type thing, you've built this trust, but now nobody wants your product anymore and they can go get it from a hundred other places. It's kind of like, you know, it it just, yeah, it doesn't work. And you have to be careful too. This is, I think another really big trap, uh, online is, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people saying, Oh, you know, I I made a million dollars last year. Uh, my business is exploding, you know, it's doing so, so well. And that might be true, but also what, what might be happening is you could be spending $1.2 million to make a million, or you could be spending like um, I was, I was talking to somebody who had a friend who, who said, Hey man, I made, a, I literally made a million dollars last year. That was my revenue. And he said to his friend, awesome what was your, uh, what was your cost, you know, for, for all that cost of goods of the product, plus your marketing expenses, like all in, how much did it cost you to make a million dollars? And it cost him $950,000 to make a million. So he profited $50,000. That's a hard way to make 50 grand a year. You know there's a lot easier ways to make fifty thousand dollars a year. You're better off managing a pizza shop for somebody yeah. else for fifty grand yeah exactly exactly, <laughs> so you gotta be so careful of that i I see that and and you know some companies will they're they're okay to just blow money on ads like like crazy and they get all excited about the sales but then they've they they run out of of runway you know they they don't have Uh, maybe they're, they're blowing through some venture capital, you know, get a hundred grand or, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars and they think, oh, we've made it. We're just going to, you know, spend a ton on, on ads. And this thing is going to blow up. And if you're not doing it properly, if you're not building a a good, strong email list, if you're not remarketing, if you don't have uh, a product that, that is consumable um, you could be in trouble. And that's one thing that Uh, with, with the product grass racks that we sell that we have to be very, very careful of because it's not a consumable product. It's something that honestly, most people are going to buy one or two in their lifetime. So our lifetime value is um, yeah. Our, our products, you know, sell for a decent amount, but the lifetime value really might not be that much. And so we can't, we can't afford to spend a ton on, on ads because we have to get a, a return quickly whereas like if you're selling coffee and you could lose money on that first sale but you're going to make it back on the repeat business as long as your coffee doesn't suck so you know
0: there's nothing
1: worse than bad coffee yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) exactly yeah
0: so so that's a that's a really interesting dilemma so Your customer comes in, they buy something once or twice. How do you Mm -hmm. stay in front of them? How do you look at your own product evolution to create repeat customers? So say I have a rack and I've got, you know, you know, I've got a floor rack and I've got my guitars in it and Mm -hmm. maybe I've got a wall rack and I've got surfboards in it or snowboards in it. Right. Yeah. What's, what's the next logical evolution to get them to buy something else?
1: So definitely I think the the most important thing you can do with online sales um is is build an email list no matter what you're what you're doing is you know whether you're selling a physical product a digital product an info product whatever it is um email is is just the most powerful tool you can use um because it's basically a free way to remarket to people um, to, to your existing customers, to people who may have been interested in something, you know, you, you might put up a lead magnet, like a discount code or, um, or a tutorial about something that's relevant to your audience or something that's going to, you know, make people put their, their email address in. And so you can reach, reach out to those people and stay in touch with them. And, um, and introduce your, your new products to, you know, to that email list. So that's, that's the best way I think you can do it um, because otherwise you're spending more money to, you know, to advertise, you know, to the same people who you could have just captured and they could have just been on your list the whole time. So I think that's, you know, that's the most powerful way really of of introducing new products to your, uh, to your audience.
0: Any thoughts in that consumer space? What's a good size list?
1: I know, I know it's a debate in the business to business world. I'm just curious your view. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the really, it doesn't matter. The size of the list doesn't matter as much as the, um, the quality of the leads, so we've actually uh, go back to grass again, just cause it's a, you know, kind of a good example of, of, uh, of all this stuff. Uh, we've run contests in like in partnership with other brands and we've gotten lists from the, from those contests that were um, 10 or 20,000, had 10 or 20,000 uh, leads in it or, you know, customers. Yeah. And and so um, where, where for a while, I mean, it, it's taken us a while to get the, the customer list that we, that we already had. And we hadn't, to that point, we hadn't really focused as much as we should have on email acquisition, on lead acquisition. And so this, we got this list of 10 to 20,000 people. We're so excited. We're, you know, we're like, this is going to, we're, we're just, we're going to make so many. So we're going to send one email and probably make like 10 or $20,000, you know? We're going to get a couple hundred customers. No problem. We sent an email and absolutely got zero sales. Um, And the, and yeah. And the reason is, and we, the uh, unsubscribe rate was higher than it should have been. And, you know, we realized that the reason was because they, the people who signed up for that contest, they just wanted something free. And not only that, but they weren't even necessarily interested in our product. There were like 10 other products that were, you know, that were uh, being given away. And one of them was a vacation worth like $10,000. So everybody wanted the vacation, you know, they didn't care about all the other stuff. Right. Um, And so, so it wasn't the list wasn't interested enough in our product, but if we, if we run a, you know, a 10% discount, and we have that as our lead magnet on our website, and we get an email from that. That's much more um, that's a much better lead. And so we don't need nearly as many, you know. Hundred, hundred people who sign up for a 10% discount. Let's say half of them use it, half of them don't. So if 50 people don't use it, we're just gonna keep remarketing to those 50 people, and we're definitely, we're almost definitely gonna get um sales from just those 50 people over time because they were interested enough in our product to put their email in for a discount code. So they're, they're, you know, likely to purchase something. It just may take a while. What, what's the
0: value of a social media following to a new product or to, or to grass racks even?
1: Yeah. Oh man. Um, so that's, yeah, that's another thing to be really careful of. Um, we, we do. We have a decent following on uh, on Instagram. You know, we've built that up over the years, and it's it's pretty good. I think we've got like thirteen or fourteen thousand. So it's uh, it's not massive by any means. Um, and we get, uh, you know, we we need to be better with our engagement for sure, and that comes down to consistency of posting. But where we've really seen the return come in is with Pinterest. So interesting. Yeah. Pinterest has has absolutely outperformed Instagram by a huge amount for us. And it's different for, you know, for a lot of things. I think if you've, you know, if you're doing fashion, um or see fashion or or, you know, like a health related product, I think Instagram's a great place to be. Um, either way, I would still also be on Pinterest. But yeah, Pinterest is really good. And one one reason that I love it is um, because it's a search engine. So it's it's indexable. Uh, when you post something on Pinterest, it stays on the internet forever, and it can be searched. So when you search something in Google, you know, you could end up on a Pinterest post or, you know, or a board. Um, and you can also, you know, if you're searching, you just search something in Pinterest, you know, you're going to find uh, your, you know, your post could come up where I don't think, people aren't really searching as much for, for things on Instagram, you know, it it comes up in their feed because it's, it's got the right hashtag, you know, it, um, it turns through the algorithm the right way for it to show up on somebody's feed who hasn't ever seen your product before. And then they follow you and now they're part of your, you know, part of your group. But once you post something on Instagram, it's like you, you have to keep that going. Very, very consistently, and you're only as good as your last post. Whereas with Pinterest, I, we're getting uh, we're getting traffic from posts we posted, a few years ago, and that's not at all the case on Instagram.
0: It's interesting because Pinterest, how you've described it, and my takeaway on that is it's more like good SEO copy. Right, it's exactly. like having a good blog post. It's going to continue to live until somebody jacks with the algorithms and takes you out of it, right? Because they need yeah. to sell more ads. Yep. yep. Google, by the way. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, but Facebook's yeah. the same. So, like, f- even oh, for this podcast, definitely. I started to build an audience on Facebook, and what I was finding is they weren't seeing the posts. I had to pay every week to put them out, and I'm like, well, guys, I'm not going to do that. So I. Yeah. Frankly, I took a different tact and I invested in a transcription service and said, I'll, I'll take the SEO out of all yeah. the different search engines and just let it run that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And out of curiosity, is that, how's that working for the podcast? You know, is, is, are you starting to get a little traction on that?
0: Yeah, so it's really interesting. So I ran it on 15 back episodes up front, right? And, and the investment wasn't huge. Frankly, I'm, I'm pretty open about it. I used Otter AI. I had a discount code for my podcast host. I got it for like 85 bucks for the year. Yeah, right? cool. It's, it's brilliant because what happened is much like you described on the um, Pinterest posts is once I uploaded a transcript to back episodes, episodes that weren't getting any listens weekly, Mm-hmm. started getting three to five lessons a day. so after yeah. they were not fresh in the queue, they just kind of had died right and the website was still mm-hmm. getting a little traffic so I actually went put it back there and you know it's not huge numbers but if you pick up 35 lessons and you do 50 or 60 episodes a year and you're picking up 35 lessons 40 lessons a day on old content oh, it's yeah. not a, it's not a bad strategy and frankly it's helped. The SEO on my website quite a bit because it's taken off the need to keep feeding the search engines because I can just put the transcripts up there weekly and mm-hmm. five or six thousand words in a transcript, and there you go. It's less content I have to write, and it's still fresh yeah.
1: content for you know people who want it. Exactly, yeah. And people are people might want to read. It's like some people want to read, some people want to watch or listen. Um, I'm a watch or listen kind of guy. Um, but my wife likes to read, so she'll the same, you know, article online, she'll read it. And I hope there's a video cause I like to watch the video, you know? <laughs> um, but it's, but in addition yeah. to that, where you're tart, you know, where you've got written content for people who want to read it, uh, like, just like you said, Google picks it up and, and that's really, really powerful. So I think that's the better investment then I think if you can invest in SEO, which at the end of the day, SEO really, cause there's, it's just like a black box. I feel like a lot of people get scared when, you know, they think about SEO and they talk about it, like, what is it really? At the end of the day, it comes down to just content and content that can be indexed by search engines, mm-hmm. um, Instagram and Facebook cannot. So, yep. um, so it, yeah, it's, you know, written posts or video. YouTube is. I've heard that YouTube is the internet of ten years ago. So it's while it's still, you know, while there's still millions and millions of videos up there, and there, you know, it's it's seems like it maybe has reached some kind of saturation. Apparently, it's not even close. And um, because Google owns YouTube, it if you're posting videos up there, they love it. So. Um, and that's, that's pretty much free, you know, to just to get a video up and uh, y- you know, you don't necessarily have to promote it or advertise it. Um, I've got a, a, a buddy who started, he lives in Philadelphia and he started a website um, called Liberty, Le- Liberty Leatherworks. And he started it maybe 10 months ago um, with zero traffic and just wrote, uh, articles consistently and relentlessly. And now he's up to, I won't give away his exact numbers, but, um, it, it's a lot. It's like tens of thousands of, of, uh, of visitors a, a month and from, from absolutely nothing, not that, not even a year ago, you know? So, um, and it's just, and he just sits back and watches, he doesn't even have to post anymore. Those Let's say he's got 10,000 this month. Next month, he'll have 12,000. The next month, he'll have 20,000. The next, you know, so yeah. it's like it. it's just as Google continues to index and find your content, it's just going to continue to grow.
0: It, it is right. And it's fascinating. And watching people come up with alternative search, I think, is is really the disruptive thing in that space to keep an eye on. Google certainly going to be a monster for a long time to come. I think it was last week that one of the chief data scientists from salesforce.com went out and funded uh, another search engine that's going to be less ad driven in theory. And we'll see how it comes to market. Right. And I've got a cybersecurity background, so I've seen people go to DuckDuckGo and other things. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So there are options out there. Verizon actually two or three years ago launched a privacy search engine. Mm mixed results, but right on but part of it's just usage too. It's not broadly adopted. And I'm old enough that I remember what it was before Google. So
1: yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I remember remember. Alta Vista. (laughs) So yeah. 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 I actually think my my dad was the first one who told me about Google. I don't know how he knew about it before I did, but in in, actually I was in college. That definitely that dates me here. But Um, he was like, yeah, have you heard about that new search engine, Google? And I'm like, what's a, what's a Google that's, that's sound. Okay. I don't, whatever. I don't care. You know, I was worried about the engineering homework that I had not having any idea how, you know, how it would just change the world in a massive way. Yeah. And the, the beauty of them is that you talk about excess product, right? We
0: kind of talked beforehand, they figured out how to make their money off of everybody's excess data and metadata it's really not even you know it's not mm-hmm. what they started as their profit came from something they never imagined so
1: yeah, yeah yeah
0: that's that's awesome so i know we're coming up on time here so anything i should have asked you that i didn't anything you want to tell us about that i didn't get a chance to bring up
1: i can't think of anything in particular um i mean i think we talked we hit on a lot of a lot of good things um you know And i think it was i appreciate you you know Bringing up grass racks, and I think that was a ended up being kind of a cool example to use to talk about product development. You know how how a product can be developed, and how you think about manufacturing and prototyping and manufacturing, um, and then how you think about a launch strategy and, and how you're actually going to get your product to market. And I, I I think that's it. I think it was awesome. I I really enjoyed it.
0: It's been a pleasure. So. For anyone who's interested in talking more with Andrew, if you go to stokestrategies.com, I think you're offering the ability to schedule a call with you. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. All right. Awesome.